All right. Um, so who wants to do the introduction? What are, do we have a name for the podcast? Oh, my gosh, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the very first edition of Peter's Field Hospital. My name is Mike Lewis, and I am the managing editor of the website wherepeteris.com. I am joined by two of our most frequent contributors, Paul Fahey and Dan Amiri. This podcast will discuss the Catholic faith, especially in the light of Pope Francis's pontificate. So on Friday, the world witnessed an unprecedented event, an extraordinary Urbi et Orbi address and benediction to the city and to the world by Pope Francis. He delivered the address from an empty and rainy St. Peter's Square in the evening, and then he did benediction. Um, so Dan, what were your impressions of this Urbi at Orbi address? Yeah, we were, I'll just kind of give you a little background on how it all shaped out in our household, but you know, six o'clock Italy time, 12 noon our time. So the kids were all playing and everything. We kind of gathered them all in. We all kind of gathered around the TV on the couch. And I'll tell you, I mean, from the first moment, it was this amazing, seeing this, you know, to see the Pope walking up all alone through the rain up to where he would be giving his address. I mean, those are some of the pictures that you see, you know, those iconic pictures of the Urbi at Orbi address. And um, it was just, you know, it kind of took me aback and I was really just amazed at what I saw. And, you know, our, uh, the family, we kind of all got together and the kids were <laughs> climbing over each other and having a, uh, you know, they were a little bit restless, but uh, I think my oldest understood what she was seeing too. And, um, you know, I think as we talked about before, Mike, but, you know, in 30 to 40 years, we're going to look back on this event and, and think about, you know, how, how momentous this was. And, and, you know, that's just kind of the nature of what this was. I mean, we're going to, in 34 years, we'll still be talking about it. Absolutely. And, and a lot of credit has to be given to the Vatican media, um, to the cinematography and the visuals, how that event was carried out. Um, you know, they can't control the weather, but on that rainy, empty St. Peter's Square, it was just an incredible sight. Um, Paul, do you have anything to add to how it struck you? Yeah, uh, I, I wasn't able to to watch it live. Um, like many people, I'm working from home and uh, we had a, a parish staff meeting through Zoom at the same time that this was going on. Um, but Friday evening, I sat down and I read his address. Um, and I, I was really moved by it. And then the next morning, uh, I listened to the whole thing through, through Vatican Media. And it was just incredible. And like you said, Mike, the visuals of um, empty St. Peter's, and the pope walking up um, the stairs there to the empty stage. Uh, I mean, I imagine this is going to go down as the the most iconic image um, from 
Francis's papacy that we're going to see. Yeah. And one of the things that I think, I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of Pope Francis's critics uh, responded so positively. Um, one thing that we've all discussed and noticed, and actually Pedro Gabriel published a piece on wherepeteris.com about that today, uh, is the fact that a lot of people who are generally critical of Pope Francis called this uh, the defining moment of his papacy, uh, said things like this, you know, basically they had nothing to criticize about him in this event. Um, one of the things that I pointed out on Twitter and that Pedro Gabriel reinforced in his piece is that if you had been paying attention to the entirety of Pope Francis's message, this would not have, maybe it would have stood out to you visually and struck us uh, each because we're all affected by this coronavirus. But those of us who have been reading Pope Francis's message and, you know, looking at his documents and not just taking the sound bites or the things that have been reported in the media. This is the same Francis that we've had for the last seven years. Um, Brian Killian, our colleague at, at WPI, uh, also tweeted that the Pope Francis of the Urbi et Orbi is the same Pope Francis of Amoris Laetitia. It just seems that in this case, perhaps because it was directed towards all of us, the people who are usually critical of it um, responded so positively. Uh, Dan, is that something that, that you also found with it? No, I, I agree. And then I think, I think the key to understanding this event is in light of suffering. So obviously, and you know, with the coronavirus, we're all suffering. Um, we may not have the coronavirus. We may, we may not be infected, but we're certainly all locked in. We're, uh, some of us have been let go or feeling like we're going to be let go from our jobs. We're, um, we're isolated from others. All of us are suffering in very profound ways. And I think when the Pope gets up there and, and talks about the suffering that we're feeling right now and tries to provide a message of encouragement, inspiration, I think there's just that instant connection where we all feel, we, we feel one as a church, we feel one um, with Pope Francis. And that's a, I mean, you can't deny that, that feeling of, you know, feeling like you belong in this church and that the church cares for you. Um, and I would just say, you know, to the, to the point that Brian made and Pedro made and you made, you know, this, this has been Pope Francis all along from day one. Um, you know, speaking to the peripheries and all those other people that are suffering in their own way, I think what they have felt with Pope Francis and are feeling uh, is the same thing that we're feeling now. Um, we're all suffering, but in different ways. And I, I just really applaud Francis for making this of a point of emphasis in his papacy to think about all those different groups of people that have experienced some sort of suffering. Um, and I think, you know, with the Morris Laetitia, I think the one that everyone jumped on was uh, the divorce and remarried. But that whole document is about families and family life and all the challenges that families face. And um, I, I mean, you read through that whole document as a as a father of three. I mean, that's that whole document spoke to me. And um, I, I kind of to your point, Mike, I just kind of wish that people would kind of go back and read through some of these documents in the light of, well, who is he speaking to? Like, is there is there someone suffering here that could really benefit from his words? And 
Um, that's I, I think I'm glad that people got away from that, you know, that took away from that Urbi at Orbi address that, hey, you know, this is a pope that really cares about me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Paul, I know that, you know, one of the things that you love about Pope Francis in that touches on these issues is the fact that he brings us the merciful God, you know, the God of mercy, the Christian God, Jesus Christ. And he reaches out to each and every one of us with love and with mercy and brings grace to us. And, and to go a little deeper into that, he tries to find that opening um, with people who might otherwise be repelled by the Christian message or who are otherwise not open to God's grace. Uh, I don't know if that's something you want to respond to or, or elaborate on. Yeah, I think, I think Pope Francis, um, he has the pedagogy uh, of God, I think I would say. Um, um, one of my jobs that I do working for the church is I lead retreats. Um, and the basis of these retreats are preaching the charisma, which is something that Pope Francis has written about quite a bit. He has gone so far as to say in the joy of the gospel that the, the charisma is the first proclamation, um, not just the first that people need to hear, but the first in a qualitative sense that it's the, the foundation of everything else in Christianity. And the first proclamation is God's love for us and God's pursuit of us. Um, but this is God's pedagogy throughout all of scripture too. If you go to like the story of Exodus, uh, God shows up, comes to Moses, does works the miracles, does the signs and wonders, leads his people out of slavery, and then he brings them to the mountain and then shows up even more. And then he gives them the moral law and gives them the, uh, the ways he's um, asking them to respond to what he's done. Um, God always leads with his love and his saving power first. And Pope Francis, too, I mean, for everybody, but especially those that he sees um, on the margins, um, on the margins of society, right, especially um, the poor and the immigrants and the refugees on the margins within the church, the divorced and remarried, LGBT Catholics. Um, he's he's reaching out um, constantly with God loves you. He's chasing after you. Um, you know, he wants to heal you. He wants to transform you. And he's leading with that message first. Um, I think that really is God's pedagogy as well. Excellent. Um, speaking of that, uh, morality aspect, uh, there are a lot of Catholics and conservatives generally who have been advocating against these public health measures that, you know, all of us are forced under. I live in the state of Maryland and we just, uh, got a stay at home order that went into effect at eight o'clock. Um, Paul, I believe your state is also shut down. Yeah, as of uh, as of Monday, uh, a week ago, uh, our governor went um, did a lockdown order. Yeah, and I don't know, uh, Dan, has your has your state, uh, Missouri, gone under lockdown yet? Uh, Missouri's a little weird. My county has though, so I'm I'm under effectively a lockdown. Okay. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, uh, the magazine First Things um, and their editor. 
uh, Rusty Reno, R.R. Reno, has advocated against these measures. Um, we've criticized his piece several times in um, on the website. Um, Pedro Gabriel wrote a an extensive critique of the bioethical errors and blunders in in Reno's article. Um, and Dan, I know you responded to it directly as well. Um, you wrote a piece called "Now the Elderly Need a Pro-Life." Now the elderly need a pro-life movement. Um, do you want to go into a little bit of of what your message was, and and in what way you were responding to these critiques of the public health measures? Yeah, and what I was talking about in that piece was the importance that the elderly have in our society, their inherent dignity. Um, and so what I saw in you know, the Twitter and on Rusty Reno's piece was really just a kind of casual dismissal of the fact that the elderly have inherent dignity. Um, you know, they, they sidestep in various ways. There's an article at National Review where they try to reduce the elderly to a dollar value. And of course, they're worth less than someone who's younger. And, all you know, just go down the list. There's all these all this rhetoric coming from people who would like to assume are part of a pro-life movement, but they, they keep denigrating the elderly. And I'm not sure why that is. And I think part of it is, you know, there's, you know, according to Rusty Reno, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, desire to get back to church. And I understand that obviously, um, being present at the liturgy is, is extremely important, but, um, you know, my concern has always been, you know, how do we do this in the most loving way possible? And you don't, you don't put the elderly at risk to do that. And so that's what I was really trying to get. I mean, ultimately I wasn't really trying to get at a specific policy for or against, or should we open or should we close? You know, that's, that's a decision that it needs to be made carefully by people, you know, between health professionals and politicians. But really what I was advocating was that as part of that decision-making process, the elderly and their health needs to be considered. It needs to be a priority, just like we would prioritize the life of the unborn or the life of the disabled or any other group that is often cast aside in our society. Uh, that's what the Catholic Church is here for, to stand up for them and speak out for them. And so um, that's what I was really trying to do in my piece, which is to make sure that we had our priorities straight. Yes, the elderly have inherent dignity and they need to be honored in our political and economic policies. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible that uh, when people are commoditized, uh, there's this whole mentality of, um, you know, the disabled are, or the unborn or the sick or the elderly are um, a burden to society. Um, and when we look at them uh, in terms of the economic impact or the the effort or the suffering that uh, caring for them or providing for them will cause, if you want to put a dollar value to that, then that's, um, that's, yeah, you're right. You know, somebody, somebody who is, is mentally disabled or somebody who is, uh, you know, has a terminal illness, um, they are, you know, from an economic perspective, an expense, but in the Catholic church, we don't put a, uh, we don't look at somebody's economic value. We look at somebody's intrinsic human dignity. Um, Paul, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, uh, that was one of the, the cornerstones of John Paul II's papacy, this idea that uh, the human person um, is a subject to be loved and is never something 
the human person is never something that uh, it's an object that can be used, right? And this was uh, this was something that this thread that connected um, his sexual teaching to his economic teaching to his critiques of communism. Uh, it's his uh, ethical underpinning, I mean, which is the church's um, ethical cornerstone as well, that the human person can never be used as a, as a means to an end. And these, these arguments being made are essentially that the lives of the more vulnerable in this pandemic um, are worth sacrificing for the greater end of economic stability for more people, right? This like greater good, greater good argument. Um, it, it reminds me of, uh, uh, of Spock's sacrifice of himself from, from Star Trek, where, uh, you know, the, the good of the many outweighs the good of the one only, um, I mean, in this case, it's not people being the first to sacrifice themselves. It's usually we're going to, we're going to sacrifice the other people, uh, this minority over here for some greater good. And this just, it's so contrary to, um, a Christian understanding of the human person and a Christian understanding of the world that it's just, um, it's mind boggling that we're hearing this so quickly and we're only at least in the United States, a few weeks into this thing. Um, to me, it shows um, probably corruption by political ideology, but but probably a lot of fear, um, a lot of fear what the future is going to hold. Um, and this fear just, I don't know, at least this is where I see in myself and all sorts of, in all sorts of ways, fear uh, seeps into our reasoning and I don't know, I know that's my explanation for how we jump to these conclusions so quickly within the people who are very openly Catholic and very openly pro-life. Yeah. Um, to kind of jump off your, your Spock point, um, we published a piece a couple of weeks ago by Carlos Colorado, who is highly involved with uh, Oscar Romero's sainthood cause. Uh, for those who don't know, he was the uh, Archbishop from El Salvador who was martyred in the 1980s. Um, he was shot while saying mass. Um, but what Carlos wrote was explaining how Oscar Romero lived out his martyrdom prior to the moment of his death. While he understood that he was under great threat, he didn't want to be killed, but he saw it as a, as a very strong possibility. Um, there had been a few attempts and threats made on his life. And so he was very careful uh, in the way he conducted himself not to endanger others. He tried to avoid large groups. He refused having a bodyguard for fear that somebody would be collateral damage. And while he was willing to take on the risk himself, which many of our you know really courageous priests and medical professionals are doing, um, what this, you know, economic message is saying is basically, uh, I'm going to impose the martyrdom or the sacrifice on other people, um, which is an entirely unfair way of, of looking at it. Um, Dan, I don't know if you had any, any closing thoughts on that topic. No, I was just, I mean, to, to Paul's point about fear, um, I, I do agree that I think there is a lot of fear and anxiety and 
that to a large extent that was sort of the focus of my latest piece where when you have this unrecognized fear and anxiety um, it's hard to think clearly really um, yeah so when you when you acknowledge that you're afraid when you acknowledge that you're grieving as i mentioned in your piece this is this is the first step toward um, toward healing and to peace absolutely um, I brought up the issue of medical professionals and priests earlier. Um, late last week, there was um, the Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, put out a policy on the anointing of the sick, whereby the priest would bless the oil and then dip a swab, uh, like a cotton swab, into the oil. The priest would do all the prayers and then the um, but would have maybe a nurse or an, a, another third party go to the patient and do the physical anointing. Very quickly, the Vatican issued, well, the USCCB issued uh, a document after they spoke with the Vatican uh, saying that that was impossible, that that was unallowable. And it also talked about another topic that's been discussed frequently, which is uh, confession over the telephone. Um, they also said that this was unacceptable and that the person must be in the presence of the confessor in order to validly receive absolution. Um, we reported on this. Uh, Dan, do you have any thoughts about about these pastoral exceptions and uh, and the Vatican's response to them? Yeah, um, really, I'm as I as I mentioned before, I really was not well-versed in this idea of spiritual communion or this idea that, um, quote unquote, the fruits of the sacrament ever really separated from the sacrament. I mean, I've heard of, I've heard of spiritual communion before, and I, I've kind of heard of general absolution, but uh, these things were not really foremost in my mind, but really diving into it, I'm, I'm kind of amazed, or I'm really appreciative of the church that you know, they're acknowledging two really important things. And the first thing is that the physical signs of the sacrament are really important. They're so important that we're not going to stretch them or we're not going to extend the signs of the sacrament to include more things so it makes it easier. Um, we're not going to um, say that you can uh, do a confession over the phone, or we're not going to say that you can do anointing of the sick through a, a mediating person. So the, the signs of the sacrament are very, very important. They're so important um, that we're just not going to allow them to be to be stretched to these extremes. But uh, at the same time, the church also teaches that the fruits of the sacrament are available to us. And, you know, for spiritual communion, you know, there's this desire to receive God. And we believe that God does offer himself to those people who cannot receive the Eucharist, you know, provides them his sacramental presence and uh with you know with the pope offering general absolution and i think paul can is more well versed on the canonical side of this but obviously you know with this desire for confession and this, and this contrition that you are forgiven by god even outside the physical signs of the sacrament proper so uh, this this teaching and and the kind of hardline stance that you might think that the church is taking actually acknowledges these two very important and uh, separate goods, you know, the, the importance of the physical signs of the sacrament and also the importance of the, the fruits of the sacrament, that people can still receive them outside the quote-unquote physical signs of the sacrament. Yeah, Paul, do you want to kind of go into the uh, 
the whole idea of perfect contrition a little bit more and maybe discuss general absolution and where and when it might apply? Yeah, uh, going back a little bit, it's it's hard for me to default bishops and pastors at this point for in this really unprecedented situation to try and get creative in in their um, sacramental ministry. I mean, but I also appreciate the church putting putting firm boundaries on that. But I appreciate, I mean, I've, some of the creativity, like drive-through confessions, or you know, I've even seen like out, outdoor masses or outdoor adoration where people like <laughs> like a drive-in movie theater almost. People drive into the church parking lot and the monstrance, the blessed sacraments outside. Um, I think I think this creativity, this pastoral creativity, is really good. But as Dan said, you got to keep it within. The, the framework, the boundaries of the church, of the physical signs. I just wanted to interject that a, a priest friend of mine who is um, very close to the sacraments and the liturgy said that this is the fastest he's ever seen the Vatican respond to ev anything ever. Um, <laughs> so take that for what you will, but um, I, it might take an ecumenical council or, or, or an encyclical or something like that to, to really evaluate whether that would be valid. You know, one of those principles is that you, or a key principle is that you don't want to uh, change policy in the midst of a crisis. Unfortunately, uh, this crisis was just completely unprecedented. There were certain things that the church was not prepared for prior to this. And so there is quite a bit of making it up as they go along. And some of these creative measures like the drive-through confession, like the drive-in adoration or drive-in mass uh, and, and all this live streaming have just been incredible. But yeah, why don't you go on, Paul, about, uh, about forgiveness and repentance? Yeah. So this idea, the, how the catechism frames it, is that God binds us to the sacraments, but he himself is not bound by them. And we see this we see this idea developing very quickly in the early church, where we have this baptism by desire, where you have uh, catechumens. And back then it was a, uh, a several year process for someone uh, to enter the church um, into, you know, the, the Romans, um, they don't see a difference between practicing Christians and these catechumens, and when you have these waves of martyrdom, the catechumens would be martyred right next to the Christians. And the church recognized very quickly that because these catechumens desired baptism, even though they weren't actually baptized with water, that their desire is what the Lord saw, right? So, so baptism is the normal means for salvation, but, but God isn't bound by, by that normal means. Um, God is more concerned with our heart than the external uh, rituals, no matter how important the, the rituals are. So, and, and this applies, like with confession, the Pope emphasized this a week and a half ago uh, in one of his homilies in morning mass, where he cites the catechism and says explicitly that perfect contrition, sorrow for sins out of love of God, along with the resolution to go to sacramental confession once you're able to forgive sins, even mortal sins, right? So if, um, and not just in times of crisis, right? If, if I commit a mortal sin on Tuesday and I have this, this perfect contrition, this sorrow for my sin on Wednesday, 
my relationship with the Lord's restored at that point, even if I can't make it to confession until until Saturday, because the, the Lord's concerned with my heart, but we have to respond with these external actions. What was interesting, one of the things I found was the 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 letter from Rome concerning uh, confession over the phone and anointing of the sick. Um, towards the end end of that letter, it referenced this section of the catechism on on perfect contrition, forgiving mortal sins, even outside sacramental confession. It says that this is analogous to this, where the desire for um, the, a patient's desire to be anointed, that's what the Lord sees, the genuine desire for this sacrament. Uh, the Lord isn't isn't a legalist going to find this person. Well, you didn't do the ritual, so you, you don't receive the grace. Like, no, 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 where's this person's heart at? Um, and I think that's a really great pastoral response from the church. Uh, instead of bending the rules of what the objective boundaries are for the signs of the sacrament, no, let's take a step back and, and uh, into this more pastoral. God knows our hearts and he knows our desires. And that's the more fundamental thing than the rituals. And isn't it providential that... Um, it was just this past October that we had the Amazon Synod and the entire church was, was taking a look at a, a region of the world that has a serious lack of priests and that the, a lot of the communities have access to the sacraments every, every six months, every year, every two or three years. And yet the life of the church is able to continue in these regions. Now, obviously, the church wants to do everything it can to provide sacraments to her people. But the fact that we've just been discussing this issue, the lack of access to a priest, the inability, I mean, if somebody in an Amazon, you know, in a rural Amazon tribe gets sick and is close to death, they can't just call a priest to come over and anoint them. So they have to do the best they can, uh, despite the lack of sacraments, Yet still, the church does provide and God provides forgiveness and grace, even outside of the sacraments. And and that's that was an important lesson, I think, for all of us to learn as that synod was going on. And little did we know that it would prepare us for what we're going through today. Yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting, Mike, and other people have pointed this out, too, where um, some of the same people who were so, so critical of, of the Amazonian Catholics coming to Rome and saying, hey, we're starving for the sacraments. Can you, could you maybe lighten up some of, some of the disciplines regarding celibacy because we're starving for the sacraments? And some of, some of the people in the church who were so critical of these Amazonian Catholics are now the ones who are like, uh, mass is canceled. We're starving for the sacraments. Maybe we should disobey our bishops and disobey civil authorities and 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 just to have mass, right? There's this this juxtaposition there. But I've heard other other com commentators say, and I think this is really appropriate. This is an opportunity for us, who are privileged in the West, who have taken this easy access to the sacraments almost for granted in many ways, to now have a sense of solidarity with our brothers and sisters across the world who don't have that easy access to the sacraments. But, but at the same time, we, we're still privileged, right? In the in the Amazon, if they don't see a priest except for once a year, mass isn't being celebrated in their community. 
um, except for once a year. I mean, my parish hasn't had mass in two weeks, but my pastor is still celebrating mass every morning, right? Like the, the prayers of the community are still being offered up and we're, he's live streaming mass every day. I'm still able to watch him. I'm still able to put myself on the altar um, as he's saying these prayers. Mass is still being offered. It's not like there isn't mass going on. Um, the aspect of not being able to receive, well, really important. It's, yeah, the celebration is still going on. Though. And, I, and I think maybe this is an opportunity in the church for us to go back to um, the Second Vatican Council that talked about how it's the liturgy, it's the celebration of the Mass that's the font and the summit um, of the Church's action. And we can still participate in the liturgy and in, in, in these more creative ways, even if we can't receive the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, speaking of those streaming Masses, this has actually been kind of a family moment for me because my brother is a, is a pastor at, at a parish um, south of here and down in southern PG County, Maryland. And um, we've been able to join with him uh, for his daily and Sunday masses. He's been a pastor for about for less than a year, and I hadn't gotten a chance to go down and visit him. So this has been a great opportunity to to see him and and, you know, to celebrate as part of his parish. Dan, do you have any thoughts on on the sacraments and, and your family? I know that you guys have been in addition to the Irby at Orby, you've watched some of the streaming masses and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I don't know if if watched is the right word. I mean, I, my wife, my wife and I were there and we were, we were participating and the kids are a little bit all over the place, but, um, I, I will say that I, I really applaud all those priests that may not be technologically inclined that are, are kind of stepping out of their comfort zone and, and doing something for the good of their church. Cause the, my kids really do appreciate being able to see their pastor who you know, visits with them in the school and they, they go to mass and they see him all the time. They, but they actually can see him on the TV. I mean, I think that that really helps make the Sunday, the Lord's day where we feel together as a parish and a community. And they, they know that there's their priest is looking out for them and they can, uh, they can see him there on the TV. I think that's, I think that's really amazing. And I, I really, I'm, you know, kind of to the point that Paul was making earlier, I really applaud all those priests that are, are thinking creatively outside the box to try to um, build up their community through God's grace in whatever way that they can they can in this time. And um, certainly for, for my priest in particular, I'm, I'm really happy that we're a part of this parish. So, yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is there's a priest, uh, Father Stephen Vrazel, I think, V-R-A-Z-E-L, who um, went to seminary with my brother. And he's based in Mobile, Alabama, the Diocese of Mobile. And uh, he tweeted that he has been personally calling one by one each family in his parish. Uh, he started a few days ago. I mean, when was the last time you got a, a, a drop-in phone call from your pastor? Yeah, um, that's what my priest has been doing the same thing. He's been calling, at least starting with the elderly, older folks in, in our parish where they might not be able to get out or they might be having, you know, they're, they're more vulnerable or, or might 
be feeling a little bit more lonely. And he's just been calling up everyone that he can call up in a day. And I, I just, I mean, just those two examples, but I just think that's, that speaks to just how amazing these, these priests are and how thoughtful and how much they care about their sheep. In a way, I think we're almost, in some ways, we're growing those of us who are active on, on social media and are, you know, are still in connection with our parish, despite our distance, we're forcing ourselves to take efforts to become closer to one another. I, I mean, I have the greatest faith and hope that when this crisis is over, that we'll begin to come together more as a faith community, that some of these, these bridges will be built. Um, Paul, you work at a parish. I, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's been interesting both, um, you know, as, uh, as a lay minister trying to figure out how do, how do we do ministry now that we can't see people when most of my ministry is through liturgies, through classrooms, and through events, like retreats and stuff, you know, how to do that. Um, but I mean, like Dan said, I get to, I get to applaud my pastor who, um, you know, live streaming videos is way outside of his comfort zone. But him and some of the other staff have been helping him. Um, I mean, he's been live streaming mass every day for the past couple of weeks now, and it's been really incredible seeing people come together, seeing hundreds and and, and now to the point seeing thousands of, of views on these things. People who, you know, we weren't sure were how active they were, or how much or how much they cared. This is an opportunity for, for community uh, in a way we hadn't had before. I mean, I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of excitement in the in this crisis. There's a there's a creativity. There's a new life that's being called forward, both in, in the local ways, um, but also in the church too. The, the blessing last Friday, um, you know, that's an example too where. You know, this blessing to the city and to the world usually only happens at Christmas, is, is what I'm told. This is unprecedented. This is a new pastoral thing that's being done. And I, I get really excited when I see stuff like that. Yeah, they use the term extraordinary, which in, you know, Catholic ease means not in the ordinary, not at the ordinary time or not in the ordinary way. And so, yeah, it was it was unprecedented. This doesn't happen very often. Um, I want to close, I guess, with just to hear from each of you about um, something that you think Pope Francis has done uh, during this crisis or or something that you would like to see other Catholics or anyone of goodwill understand better about Pope Francis. I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but Paul, do you have any any thoughts about that? I I think something that that the Pope's drawing our attention to, uh, and maybe not intentionally, but I'm I'm kind of seeing a thread here in his actions since this pandemic has been going on, is he's inviting us to the normal way of doing things. Um, we don't have access to those anymore. And what's the more important thing? And then the more important thing, like I mentioned before. Uh, is the kerygma, is this first proclamation of, of God seeking after us, God chasing after us to heal us, to transform us, to make us like himself. 
and that and that's the first thing and th th this message even transcends uh, moral obligations it even transcends our religious obligations uh, where even if all these structures and ways of doing things that we've been so used to are taken away we can still rest our hearts on the fact that God is still chasing after us and that if we come to him with a sincere heart he's going to meet us right where we're at he's going to forgive us he's going to reconcile us he's going to heal us and transform us even if we're not able to make it to church even if we're not able to go to confession or receive communion God's still here in this moment that's that's the greater thing that's the the first thing the first principle i think the pope is keeps bringing us back to that point dan do you have any thoughts yeah, I mean, from his uh, thing about his whole papacy up until now in these this past couple of weeks, uh, I'll just say personally, I've been really touched, you could say, by Pope Francis's invitations to prayer and really making it accessible to everybody. And really, for, for me and my family, it's been uh, an amazing opportunity to, to come together in prayer and be one as a church. I mean, that this this experience of, you know, I can say to my kids, you know, Pope Francis has called, uh, has asked us to pray the rosary today or asked us to pray the Our Father. Uh, Pope Francis is going to be speaking to us on the TV. This has been an amazing, amazing time. And I think Pope Francis and just thinking about all of his letters and his, you know, his encyclicals, his exhortations, uh, it's always been for me, about the little things, about all the little things that we that get in the way of us being more holy or get in the way of God acting in our lives. Um, and whether it's family life or you're working in the parish or whether it's just your prayer life, all of his, his whole papacy is filled with just these little invitations to think of something practical that you can do to um, grow closer to God. And uh, this, these past couple of weeks have been a remarkable example of just how he's done that with, with his call to prayer um, and his Irby at Orby and just his presence. I mean, it's, I think as we opened with, this has just been uh, more of the same from my perspective, but for those people that are uh, coming around to him for the first time are really, you know, giving him a close look, I would just encourage you to kind of go back through all of his old letters and his documents and say, you know, this is this is who Francis has been. It's always been about those little things, those little invitations that can really transform somebody's life. Yeah. Um, you talk about his presence. And for me, uh, one of the keys has been his presence as a pastor as the vicar of Christ, as as the supreme pontiff, he's also the shepherd for the universal church. And I think one of the things that that's really struck home, these personal invitations, while, you know, most of us are, are stuck at home to pray the rosary, to pray the Our Father, to view the Irby at Orby address, he's the pastor of our whole church. And I think that really showed itself for a lot of people who hadn't really been thinking of him that way. Uh, as most of our readers know, uh, one of the things that that I see as as problematic in response to his papacy is this rejection of authority, this rejection of leadership. 
But one thing that Pope Francis is demonstrating, and he's doing it in a very traditional way, through acts of piety, through acts of prayer, um, through uh, calling people to conversion and to repentance, he's really demonstrated that he is a pastor, that he is devoted to helping people become closer to Christ and, and leading them on that path to eternal salvation. And I'm just thankful that some people are starting to see that for the first time. And I invite them, uh, if you're skeptical of Pope Francis and, and you're worried about some of his teaching because you think he's deviated from the tradition, yet you were impressed by his recent actions, I would just encourage encourage you to give him another read. Read Evangelii Gaudium with an open mind. Um, read Gaudete et Exultate. Understand that he is not deviating from Catholic doctrine, but he is opening up the church to people who maybe didn't have that openness before. And he's also encouraging and sometimes admonishing those of us who frankly, aren't offering an invitation uh, to those who feel distant from the church. We aren't this closed society. We aren't, a, we aren't a club. We're the body of Christ. And Christ wants us to be light to the world, not to offer a, a rule book or, or strict moral guidelines uh, to others. I mean, those uh, moral doctrine and, and discipline are definitely important to the church and important, um, important in our lives. But just like Paul said, the kerygma is the way to open the door, that proclamation of the gospel. And we need, as a church, to do a better job of bringing the gospel to others. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening to us. I want to thank Dan and Paul for joining me this evening. Everyone stay healthy. We'll keep you all in prayer, and I hope you'll pray for us. Uh, come visit us at wherepeteris.com, and God bless all of you. Thank you. <laughs>